As we continue in our series of sermons on the life of David, today we're in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. The title of today's message is From Tragedy to Triumph, but the sub-theme is When the Bottom Falls Out. Don't know if you've been there. Some of us seem to live at that address where the bottom fills out falls out frequently and we're going to see that in David's life today and try to understand that that's not unusual for consistent normative Christian living for the bottom to fall out. As a matter of fact, as we grow we will see that happen frequently because Jesus said through much tribulation shall you enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you know anything about tribulation, that just means one trial after the other. So with that encouraging thing said, let's uh, look at chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins and when he had eaten his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights and David said to him to whom do you belong and where are you from David was a southerner you know that's what southerners always ask each other where are you from a little humor it's a long reading and he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, 
and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all, and David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And when they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, and when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them uh, any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man, excuse me, but David said, verse 23, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, and the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, and in Eshtimah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, and the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Atak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that this chapter is in the Bible, and because it is in the Bible, it has something to say to us. But we need to be people who are willing to hear and listen and ready. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts like very fertile soil to receive the seed of the Word of God, which will take root and grow in us and produce fruit in us that will beautify the name of Jesus and bring glory to his name. And that is our heart's desire. Lord, we want to be hearers and doers 
of your word, and we pray for grace to do so today in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, the bottom has dropped out. David, if you will remember when we left him, had experienced a great deliverance of mercy from the Philistines because he found himself in his clever ruse in the middle of the fifth column of the army of the Philistines who were going to destroy Saul and the people of Israel. And David was there, and finally the officers recognized that he was in the back, so he may well kill as many of them as he could on the way to the battle. And they sent him away, even though Achish, uh, the Philistine lord, pleaded his case. And so David experienced a great deliverance of mercy, and now he's going back home. And what he expects when he goes back home, and you know, when we experience often great and merciful deliverances of God, we are extremely vulnerable in our hearts. And so David was, and so his expectation going home was to go home and to rest and be refreshed, to be with his family, to feast, to rejoice in what the Lord had done. But when he came home, he was utterly overwhelmed with trouble. Again, we see, because we have the reader's edge, we know what happened in verses 1 and 2 before David discovers it himself in verse 3. The Amalekites had raided Ziklag. And you remember Ziklag was a city that Achish had given to David or a town and a home to live in. They had torched everything. They had taken the women captive and carted off the children and the, and the women. Some may see mercy in the fact that Amalek did not kill any of the captives, especially in the light of David's practices, but normally it was a minor mercy. Everyone knew why the captives were kept alive. Why did he keep them alive? Why did he not kill them? Well, they could be sold for profit to merchants, or they would eke out the rest of their lives in isolation, bondage, and misery. Soon enough, David and his men discover what we already know in verse 3. The shock of the smoldering rubble, the sorrow of the wives and families taken. There was but one thing left to do, and that was wait. They did until there was no strength, uh, excuse me, wail, not wait, and they did wail. They wailed until they could wail and weep no more. They grieved in the presence of God. And so they did until there was no strength left to cry out or scream anymore. What little strength was left was exercised in blaming David and lobbying one another to stone him. Uh, One of the great things about being a leader is when things go wrong, when things go well, I mean, you are walking on air. When things go wrong, you're the first one people turn to, uh, to take down. And that's precisely what happens here. And so grief was transmuting into bitterness and rage. By the way, do you know how to grieve before the Lord? Do you know how to lament before the Lord? You see, I grew up in a Christian tradition that you just basically stuffed all those negative feelings. And if something bad happened to you, you would just say, well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. He knows what he's doing. 
You know, like you got up in the morning and you backed over your dog that you've had for 18 years. You back on through the driveway and your kids see it and they're screaming. And then uh, as you continue on out the driveway, you stop and get out and a tree falls on your car and you say, praise the Lord. Good things are going on. No, that's called stoicism. Stoicism is not biblical maturity. Stoicism is basically saying, all right, I'm going to make myself inside not care. I'm not going to show any grief. I'm not going to show any hurt because I don't believe it's appropriate for Christians to cry out to the Lord in their pain and to vent whatever's going on in their heart before him. And so I'm just going to stuff it. But if you stuff stuff like that, it will eventually eat you alive. It will eventually undo you. And you'll do something ten times worse than you would have ever done anyway. We have to learn to go before the Lord when our troubles overwhelm us and grieve before him. And you don't do this blindly. In the Psalms, there are all kinds of Psalms of lament where David himself expressed his grief to God. You don't, you don't go too far with it to where you are disrespectful to the Lord himself, but there's a place for grief when overwhelmed with trouble. And if you don't do that, it'll be worse for you in the long run. And so the problem with the disaster at Ziklag is not an isolated one. For David, if you just think about it with me for a moment, the pounding had been going on since 1 Samuel 18. If he wasn't dodging spears, he was trying to get away from Saul. Everything was against him every minute, it seemed, of every day. Yet it seemed more unbearable given its immediate context. From the latest emergency, he had just received a marvelous deliverance. And it was great. And how they had looked forward to coming back home to Ziklag, how long, and you know, the trip was 60 miles, and how fine it would be to simply enjoy the relief among the loved ones. But the yo-yo effect seems to make the battering more excruciating. It's like David had exhaled and said to himself, finally. Finally, I can go home, and I'm not going to be chased by Saul anymore, and I'm not going to be killed by the Philistines, and I can go home and be safe and secure. And the minute he gets home, what happens? Everything's gone. Everything's changed. The bottom has truly fallen out. A marvelous escape, a moment to breathe, a grand relief, only to be thrown in the pit again. Better never to have been lifted out of the slop than to be lifted out of it and to be thrown into it again. And that is exactly what David experienced. David is Yahweh's chosen king. And how could David be Yahweh's chosen king and suffer like this? In 1 Chronicles 29.30, we are told that the written accounts of David's life and reign tell us of the circumstances that passed over him. Indeed, they did wave upon wave, and David, the king designate, was indeed a suffering servant. Here, David is a type or a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ's life was nothing but incredible tribulation, hardship, suffering, misunderstanding. Uh, persecution. And here's a sobering and disturbing picture for us as the people of God. 
Are there not times when you think it just can't possibly get any worse? And 1 Samuel chapter 30 says, yes, it can. <laughs> it can get worse. There are times when you conclude that the present trouble is simply the last straw for you. You simply cannot take it anymore. You've had it. It's enough. And then comes Ziklag, the last straw after the last straw. Sometimes you're tempted to add another stanza to this verse. Weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning and disaster strikes the next afternoon. That's not in the text, by the way. So I'm trying to get you to feel and sense where David is in this particular text. What's going on? What he must be struggling with? A Christian woman once wrote to encourage J.B. Phillips, who wrote a modern translation of the New Testament. Phillips endured a great deal of depression and mental distress, and in the course of her letter, the woman described some of her own sufferings. She had what many would call a terribly unhappy childhood. She had suffered several severe illnesses, but seven years ago had been stricken with polio, which left her, fortunately, she said, with a caliper and an elbow sticks. But some sort of systemic gangrene set in and made life much slower and more cumbersome. Her husband, a political refugee, developed psychotic tendencies and took on a whole different personality. When he saw the effects of her polio, he couldn't take it anymore. He left her and went to Canada. She was then forced to raise three small children on no income. Though in an answer to prayer, the Lord did provide for her. In addition, her daughter's fiancé was killed by a car. That, of course, would have been plenty, but then she returned to Ziklag two years after the fiancé's death, and the daughter herself was in a car accident and suffered a concussion. But told no one about it, it was so baffling that when she tried to take her life with an overdose of pills, that was caught only to be followed by two more serious attempts. At last, Philip's correspondent says she had had to commit her daughter to a mental institution. That was almost unbearable, for she knew her daughter was suffering and not able to communicate or reach her in any way. Yet she wrote in all these times, she knew God never failed her. We have a disturbing text. God's special servant, David, is overwhelmed with trouble. And by implication, we understand that this could be true for any of us as God's servants. The text says that your distresses and troubles could intensify. Even this, however, does not leave us comfortless. For here is the realism of the Bible. Here is no hiding of the truth or preaching of half-truths. Here's no false advertising. As the Lord's servants, you may be overwhelmed with troubles. You may receive more than you think you could ever possibly handle. But God in his word tells us that we can trust a God like that. You can depend on him in your tribulation. He didn't reduce it to small print hidden in a footnote. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. But the first there are four observations I want to make from the text in a row. There are the four points in your bulletin, and the first one is probably the most important. Strengthening yourself 
in the Lord? Do you know how to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Do you know how to do that? It wasn't that David sat down and mustered up some kind of willpower that David tried to the best of his ability to talk himself into more courage and more ability. No, David looked outside of himself and found strength somewhere else. Do you know how to do that? And how do we do that? How do we do that? Because we're going to suffer tribulation. We're going to suffer hardship. We're going to be brought to the end of our resources. We're going to be brought to a point where we don't know which way to turn. We don't know what to do next. We're uh, uh, paralyzed by analysis. And David was under severe pressure. Indeed, not only his own sorrow, but the rebellion of his men. Who knows how many votes there were to stone him? It's at this point that we meet with that statement, David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. David is in the pit, but the turning point for David's life happens down in the pit. You must ask then what it means to strengthen yourself in the Lord. We begin by specifying what it's not. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is not strengthening uh, yourself through some kind of gospel magic, sort of talking to yourself and giving yourself a, a, a pap, pep talk. It's not a quick fix. It's not recognizing that the pressure is on and so deciding to seek help in religion. The Lord is not a genie in a bottle you rub in trouble to make you feel better. Jesus is not your own personal pain reliever, Bayer, Aspirin, or Advil, to get you on top of the aches of life. Strengthening in yourself with the Lord is nothing so superficial or so superstitious. Nor is it merely venting your spleen, that is, letting go emotionally. That was already done, as we have seen, to the point of exhaustion. But there's a difference between pouring out your sorrow, being empty, as it were, and strengthening yourself in the Lord. And this should be obvious. But among contemporary, psychologically sophisticated Christians, it's necessary to say this. Some may make much of the need for believers to be open, to talk about their distress, to get it all out, to not hold it in. And normally there's nothing wrong with that. Some of us pastors keep urging God's people to do that and not be afraid to pray like the psalmist as I just did. But one can cry tears, vent your emotions, and still not help yourself at all by strengthening yourself in God. Saul was in great distress, just as David, and he could express it and grieve about it, yet he never strengthened himself in the Lord. No one is saying we must stifle our grief, our moans, and our cries, and our weeping. But is there something more? Does our distress bring us before God? You may let it all out, but not strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. One more negative qualification. Even if you freely and openly express anger and assign blame in your troubles, that's not strengthening yourself in the Lord. I point that out because in some Christian circles, there's an anger cult, sort of, whose dev devotees have come to recognize that they have a right to be angry. They have a right to express that angry uh, at what their parents did or did not do, uh, at one spouse or children, and so on. And if the anger is accurate and within biblical confines, I have no problem with that. 
But that is not the same thing as strengthening yourself in the Lord. I know what you're saying. Tell us what it is. Well, I'm trying to set it up for you. I'm going to tell you what it is. What does it mean? Precisely what David did with the personal God. David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his. Underline that word, his. His God. There was an intimate, personal pronoun here that David uses to describe his relationship with God. For example, in my life today is Father's Day. And I am the proud father of three daughters, the proud husband, and I refer to Pam as my Pam. She's mine. She's not yours. She's mine. I refer to Mary as my Mary. I refer to Megan as my Megan. And I refer to Molly as my Molly. They are connected to me. There's a relationship there. There's years of connectedness and living life together. And, and it's personal. It's, it's part of my joy, part of my life, part of the fiber of my being. I am one with them in every sense of the word. They are mine. Do you have that kind of relationship with the Lord? Is he your God? You know, I've told you this before. Martin Luther said, the essence of Christianity is personal pronouns. He is my God. I shall be your God. You shall be my people. I am his. He is mine. And that's the first step. There's a danger of Israel holding on to a covenant faith without having a vital personal faith. It's all too easy to speak of the shepherd of Israel, but not be able to say, Yahweh is my shepherd. I, I, I encourage you to read the 23rd Psalm that way sometimes when you're praying it or thinking about it. Stick personal pronouns in there. He's my shepherd, mine. There's a connectedness there. And that's how the strength begins. Just as we in the church might refer to Jesus, the Son of God, but would not dare uh, call, dream of calling him the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. David could no longer say, my house, my city, my possessions, but he could say, at the bottom of the pit, my God. And that's where strengthening has to begin. You'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you got. You'll never know that. And where does one begin in this matter? What do you do? The text provides some clue, and perhaps it implies that you strengthen yourself in Yahweh, or the Lord, by remembering the promises and affirmations of his word. That is, promises that pertain to you, and affirmations about the character of the Lord, so we, we can see that Jonathan once in the series of David's life approached David himself and helped him remember the promises that Yahweh was going to give him the kingdom. If David strengthened himself in the Lord, he must have recalled the promises and how he had not allowed a single word to fall to the ground unfulfilled. God's people strengthened themselves in uh, precisely this way. You've got to learn how to lay hold of God's promises that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. You've got to go and make those promises your own. 
It's a dangerous thing I was thinking about being a father. Uh, and it's a dangerous thing to make a promise to your children because they never forget it. If I say after this movie we're going to the Dairy Castle and get an ice cream cone, they're not going to forget that, are they? Because I get out of the movie and I think, well, let's just go on home. There's a lot of traffic, a lot of stuff going on. I don't really want any ice cream. No. And we have to be like a dog with a bone. We have got to claim and lay hold of the reality of the promises of God. That's where strength comes from. That's where spiritual strength to go on comes from. As we look outside of ourselves and lay hold of God and His promises. Some of you, that's hard to imagine now. Andrew Bonar, who was a great preacher in the Free Church of Scotland, uh, and a pastor wrote in his diary for October the 15, 1864, of his grievous wound. Isabella, his wife of 17 years, died apparently of complications following childbirth. He wrote that on the day of her death, he had, according to his custom, been meditating on a scripture text between dinner and tea. On that day, it had been Nahum chapter 1, or Nahum 1-7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Andrew Bonar added, Little did I think how I would need it a half hour and a half later. Bonar never forgot Isabella's death, and he mentions it in, even in October. I dare say he never forgot Nahum 1-7. Why did he mention it to his diary along with his wife's death? Because he was strengthening himself in Yahweh his God. It was that promise of God's word that kept him on his feet and from completely disintegrating. A second way we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord, and I know what you're saying, that's point one, and you've got three more to go, hurry up. A, a second way we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God is by using our access to his presence. We've talked about this already. David turns in the midst of all this chaos about what to do, and he turns to Abiathar, the priest. Abiathar had the ephod, and he could consult Abiathar about what to do next, and he did. And he sought him out. And he found the recourse open for him. And we have a priest greater than Abiathar. We have the Lord Jesus in himself. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our uh, confession. But we have such a priest that we are continually to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We may not get precise answers to precise questions, but we will find grace to help. I don't often need information, but I need endurance. I need strength. I need power. And I need to be able to stay on my feet. Go to your priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that I want you to observe from this text when the bottom falls out is to recognize the ubiquity of God's providence. And God's providence is simply the fact that our sovereign God is intimately engaged with our world. He doesn't simply create it and sort of like a watchmaker turn a uh, uh, turn the uh, spring so that it'll keep time and then cast it off. 
He's not a deist God. He is a God who is actively engaged in the affairs of our life. The Shorter Catechism defines providence as God's work of providence or his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and their actions. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because right after David goes to Abiathar, he gets word to go. They get down to the brook at Besor. All of a sudden, this Egyptian just shows up. Out of nowhere, this Egyptian just shows up and happens to know where the people who had raided Ziklag were. And on honor that his life would not be destroyed, he informed David. He was an a informant. And even though David was going to go wherever he had to go, this guy coming along had to confirm to him God's promises. God does govern. He does uphold. He does rule. He does keep the universe together and so as a result of that uh god's uh, by the way ubiquity i didn't mean to throw a 50 cent word at you but ubiquity just means wareness ubi means where uh, rc Sproul used to talk about the ubiquity of god a lot in class and seminary and rc would go remember my motto for life and i'd say well what is that and he would say semper ubi Sub ubi. And so we're sitting out there looking at one another and going, that's Latin. I know that much. And he's already told us what ubiquity. You know what that means? Always wear under wear. <laughs> I said that so you'll remember the concept of ubiquity. Ubiquity is the awareness of God. Where is he? He is present with the entirety of his being at every point in space without being swallowed by what's in space. He's separate from and yet present everywhere. And those moments in your life that you can look back on where you dodged a bullet or you happened to get information at just the right time or something else happened to you are sweet providences that help with the bitter providences that come into our experience. But remember that as you're trying to deal with the bottom falling out of our life. I could say a lot more of that. We have said a lot about that in this narrative. But a dehydrated Egyptian in two verses feeds himself and helps him recover and makes a huge difference in his life. The third thing that I want you to see is in when our bottoms fall out, and they will, you have to develop a theology of grace. What do I mean by this particular thing? What I mean by this particular thing is that you notice that when they got the spoils of victory back, and they were coming back to Besor, where the 200 guys who were too exhausted to go on, and they decided to divide, to divide the spoils, of course there's always somebody in the group and you got to know these men following David are, are not elders at the First Presbyterian Church of Ziklag okay these are criminals these are hardened people and of course when he comes to share the spoils of course the 400 men that went and fought said they shouldn't get anything they're just sitting here in the camp they didn't go they didn't fight they don't deserve it. We did go. We did fight. We took it. We won it. It's ours. And David said, no. No. 
That'll never work. You know what that reminds me a lot of? You remember the parable Jesus told of the landowner who went out and hired people to work in his vineyard? And, he, you know, a day's work in the first century uh, in Judaism was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., sunrise, sunset, thereabout. And as a result of that, he goes out, he gets some to come at 6, he gets some to come at 9, he gets some to come at 12, he gets some to come at 3, he gets some to come at 5, and even some to come at 6. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same. You remember that? And of course, the guys that have spent, and believe me, I'm sympathetic who spent 12 hours working themselves silly, received exactly the same as the guys who only showed up for 30 minutes, 15 minutes. Some may have showed up at 6, didn't hit a lick. What was Jesus trying to communicate in that parable? That's what grace is, you see. Grace is not paying you what you deserve or what you earned it's free. And David showed grace. Here again, he's a type of Christ, distributing gifts. It's just like plundering the Egyptians when they came out of Egypt. He plundered the Amalekites. He brought back more than they had taken away, and he gave some. But he was also, David was also a politically astute person. Because you'll notice he not only provided for those men who were back at the camp who were too exhausted to go, who had, you know, only traveled 60 miles, and the next day had to travel I don't know how many more miles to get to the brook at Besor. But as a result of that, David comes and he gives to them, but he also sends part of the spoil to who? The elders, and he names all these nowhere towns that we know nothing about, to all the elders. Why did he do that? That was strictly a political move because he's getting ready to be king over the nation does that mean all politics are wrong no no not here he was smart he was smart to take advantage of that and so the decisive nature and the wonderful nature of grace is distributed here but I close with the last point you don't know how hard it is to preach this many verses in this amount of time but I'm trying to show you. So, let's look at the encouragement and the rejoicing or relishing of God's victory. Yahweh, or excuse me, David is Yahweh's servant. He's also wise as a serpent, as I said. Nothing wrong with that combination. Biblical faith never asks us to check our brains at the door. David uses... His. Back in Ziklag, David sees, sends some of the plunder seized from the Amalekites to the elders of Judah. But David's gifts were shrewd. They would win him friends and support and grease the palms to the path to his kingship that will happen in 2 Samuel 2. Nothing illegal. One can be sharp without being sinful. Doesn't always mean the same thing. So here's the great thing, though. David himself catches the importance of the victory in a single line. His greeting to the elders of Judah is, Here's a gift for you from the plunder of Yahweh's enemies. David here speaks of how the great shepherd has taken care of the sheep. Uh, we don't merely have an ancient altercation here between Israel and Amalek. 
Rather, this conflict is symptomatic of a much greater war. There are Yahweh's people and Yahweh's enemies, and there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of Yahweh and the kingdom of this world. There are two humanities, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there is 1 Samuel 30, Yahweh's enemies have been trounced. This victory then is not an episode but a promise, a scale model scenario of how it will be when Yahweh makes the Davidic Messiah's enemies his footstool. God's victory here is encouraging for it's both a preview and a pledge of the final victory we will see our Lord Jesus accomplish. And so, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Knowing that Yahweh's enemies will perish breeds a holy defiance, just as Jesus promises when he returns. Well, let's even take it back one notch further. You remember that when Jesus went to the cross and he died, he was buried. On the third day, he arose again. He appeared to over 512 people we know of and probably more. On the day of ascension, Acts chapter 1, he ascended to the right hand of the, uh, heaven where we know he's coming back. But what did he do first when he ascended to the right hand of heaven? He gave gifts to men. He won for us the Holy Spirit, the essential gift, the Holy Spirit which is enables us to become Christians and live out our faith before him. But he also provided spiritual gifts. He gave gifts to the church according to Ephesians chapter 4. That's exactly what David is modeling and pointing to here, the ultimate coming. But the ultimate coming of Christ, when he returns, he will again distribute gifts to his people as he brings destruction upon his enemies. So what do you do when the bottom falls out? You've got to learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. You have to learn how to recognize God is with you always. You have to develop a theology of grace. You know, Jonah, Jonah resented the fact that he went to Nineveh and all those Ninevites were converted. He hated that. Why? He had no theology of grace. He didn't want people who didn't deserve it to be saved, and he thought he deserved it, therefore he was upset. You ever get mad at people experiencing blessings who you don't think are as good a Christian as you are? Well, you need to develop a theology of grace with me. And finally, we've got to learn how to anticipate and enjoy that one day he will come and victory will be our reality. Then there will be no more bottom fallen out. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And we pray that it would find hearts that are struggling today and encourage them, lift them up, give them a sense of hope, a sense of standing in the midst of the battle and the warfare and uh, you're being faithful to uh, keep them to yourself. Father, we do pray that as we continue to worship you today that we would be faithful in our giving. We thank you that you have provided for us everything we need and we pray that as we give today we would do so not uh, out of any kind of motives that would think we're obligating you 
to be good to us, but we give to you because you're good to us, because you love us so. And we want to express from the depths of our being gratitude to you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.